Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we have the second part of our two-part series on Plotinus and Augustine. And uh, I'm assuming that you have listened to the previous one already. And so without any further words of introduction, I'm just going to jump into the second one. And uh, we're going to find lots of interesting things to comment on as we go. I'm just going to be reading through my research paper here that you can find on my blog, nolongerbechildren.wordpress.com. And the paper is called, um, what is it called? Plotinus and Augustine or something like that? Um, Augustine, overview. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 AD, was an African-born Christian. Interesting note, um, born in the north part of Africa, um, with a Christian mother and a pagan father, pagan meaning non-Christian. He was raised as a catechumen, that means um, somebody that was officially in the church learning um, in preparation for baptism. Um, at the time, they they pushed off baptism um, as long as they could because they felt like once you were baptized, if you fell away, you couldn't be you couldn't come back, you couldn't be saved, um, and so uh, often they would uh, push baptism off. And uh, he, um, anyways, he he wasn't baptized right away, um, and he lost his faith when he went to study rhetoric in Carthage at three seventy A.D taking a mistress and fathering a son. He later read Cicero's book Hortensius, which is a now lost book, which is a call to philosophy. And that book set the 18-year-old Augustine on a quest for truth, a quest which the later Augustine would describe as a Godward journey. So, of course, his family and everybody is, or his mother especially, is weeping for him at this point. But in hindsight, Augustine can say this whole quest leaving the church pursuing philosophy, um, reading reading Cicero, reading you know Plotinus, even going into the Manichaeans, it was all a walk towards God because he was seeking truth and God is truth, even though it certainly didn't seem like it at the time. Um, this journey led him to Manichaeanism, and for nearly a decade he followed this dualistic system. In 384 AD, after teaching rhetoric in Tagast, Carthage, and Rome, he accepted a position as professor of rhetoric at Milan. Here, a number of factors conspired to bring Augustine back into the Christian fold. So This is super compressed, but I have a, a sermon on Augustine you can go back and listen to if you'd like, uh, and that's in the sermons podcast, uh, Josiah Meyer-Sermons, in the iTunes store. Uh, among these factors was contact with the Bishop St. Ambrose, whose life and teaching impressed him. A meeting with the foremost living Manichaean scholar, Faustus, had left Augustine delusioned with the movement. Augustine was now flirting with the beliefs of the skeptics, who had recently taken up residence within Plato's academy. Significantly, Augustine found a group of Christians and agnostic Neoplatonists who met to read the works of Plotinus. This, these discussions helped him to resolve two decisive issues essential for his conversion to Christianity, the immaterial, immateriality of God and the problem of evil. Um, 
doing a great disservice to the sophistication. Okay, so Manichaeans misrepresented Christianity by saying that God was completely materialistic. Uh, that God was a material thing, like this table or this chair. Uh, and they said that's that's silly, and, and uh, mocked Christianity for that. As evidence, they read all the anthropomorphic language in the Old Testament. Anthropomorphic means uh, attributing human characteristics to something. Um, like you could say, uh, oh, she's a, she's a mighty fine ship. And you don't really mean that she's that that the ship is alive or that it's feminine or anything like that. You're attributing feminine characteristics to them. That's an anthropomorphic comment. Um, and a lot of the language in the Old Testament is anthropomorphic in that it attributes human characteristics to God. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God is a human. It's just attributing certain characteristics to him for theological reasons. Um, and Ambrose helped Augustine realize that um, a lot of these passages in scriptures can justifiably be interpreted metaphorically. And Plotinus helped Augustine conceive of the immateriality of God. As A.W. Argyle writes, Plotinus made clear as never before the non-spatial, non-material, non-quantitative nature of God and the soul. An even more significant contribution was in regards to the problem of evil, or the ancient problem of theodicy. In 386 AD, Augustine wrote De Ordini, chronicling his intellectual wrestlings with this question. This appears to, be, to have been one of the main reasons he resisted his mother's persistent call to leave Manichaeism for Christianity. If all of reality comes down to a single good deity, then whence comes evil? Either God is not almighty, or he is not all good. One of the main attractions of Manichaeanism was its ability to explain both good and evil in the world. It did so by assigning to each real and equal ontological existence. Both good and evil are competing forces in the world, thus expla apparently explaining what Christianity could not. So the big problem with Christianity still today, I mean, it is the first thing that people think about often, and it is still um, the hardest one to answer is, if God is so good, if God is so loving, and he's all-powerful, then why does he allow pain and suffering in the world? Uh, and there's, I've got two different, pod, I've got two whole classes in my apologetics class dedicated to that question because it's so important. Um, and there's kind of the emotional problem, hey, like this just doesn't make sense, uh, this hurts, this bothers me emotionally especially when it touches me personally and then there's the very real intellectual question um you know the concept of a good god doesn't seem to jive with the world that we're in so um, manichaeanism believes that um there is a good god and there is a bad god and they're more or less equally um they have more or less equal power and so they're back and forth back and forth in the world fighting um and I think they believed that eventually the good would win, but at this point it's you know it's an equal fairly equally matched battle um and so that seemed to explain the problem for Augustine. Plotinus, however, was able to explain how evil could exist in a world where all comes from one good source that is evil is a privation of good, so if you remember the fountain that we we talked about last week 
where good is kind of spilling down through this fountain um, and material for Plato for Plotinus material beings are kind of um, they're evil because they're far from the good uh, and so in a sense it is it is created by good um, but it's where there is evil it's because it's too far away from the one it's it's um, the goodness of the one has has spilled down enough to create something uh, but it, it's not in the light of the good to um, have you know order and reason and rationality and and um, goodness in it um, and furthermore this solution um, and we'll so I don't think I actually explained this really thoroughly, but the way that Augustine changes this is to say that evil is, you know, God creates free will. He allows people to make their own choices. Um, free will is good. Otherwise, people couldn't love. Otherwise, people couldn't worship. Otherwise, people couldn't be people, really, without free will. But free will comes with the possibility of choice, and choice means you can choose good or bad. Um, and so we should choose good which is you know what god would do it's turning towards god but we can also choose to turn away from god um and when we turn away from god we're we're turning you know towards the darkness we're moving away from the creator we're moving away from life we're moving downwards we're moving outwards um and you're justified now to think about hell for augustine kind of being like that abyss underneath um, the the um, the fountain of Plotinus, except that Augustine very much believed in a conscious eternal torment of hell, but the idea being that the reason that hell is so terrible is because we don't have God there, and God is the source of all good things, and God is the source of of beauty and pleasure and light and all that. So. Um, yeah, I'm not sure why I didn't explain it more thoroughly in this paper, but that's kind of the, the essence of how he, he uses that. All right, so um, in books eight, in book eight of Confessions, Augustine explains how he got saved. Um, in AD 386, he was baptized the next year, which actually that's when he would have said he got saved. And he was ordained as a priest, um, as that five years later, in AD 391. For the rest of his life, Augustine devoted his formidable intellect to the task of defending and expanding the Christian faith. In so doing, he made heavy use of one of his favorite philosophical tutors, Plotinus, thus bringing Platonic philosophy with, with him into the church. The influence of Plotinus on St. Augustine Augustine likely did not have good access to Plato and Aristotle owing to his poor Greek. Um... Side note here, Augustine's dislike of, Gre of the Greek language was significant enough to merit two entire chapters of soul-searching in his confessions. Um, Augustine seems genuinely perplexed at the deep hatred he bears towards the language and the literature of Greece in Confessions 1, 8-9. He just kind of goes on and on and on about how he hates Greek so much he had to learn it in school. He loved reading Latin, reading Latin uh, poetry and myths, but he hated Greek so bad, so much. Um, and uh, if memory serves me correctly, I think he, he kind of said, well, it's not my mother tongue, uh, and it's normal to not really enjoy learning a second language as much as you enjoy learning 
the language that you grew up with. Uh, but at any rate, he did not know Greek very well, and so he didn't have good access to um, the Greek masters. Like most Platonists after Plotinus, Augustine's apprehension of the Greek masters... Okay, sorry, but he did have access to good Latin translations of Plotinus. So that was significant in his, very significant in his life. Like most Platonists after Plotinus, Augustine's apprehension of the Greek masters seems to have been significantly colored by the contributions of Plotinus. So because he didn't, he wasn't able to read Plato or Aristotle for himself, but he was able to read Plotinus, clearly he understood, you know, the other guys through Plotinus, which ended up being the story of a lot of the Latin West. Since Augustine saw, along with Clement of Alexandria, but in contrast to Tertullian, Christianity. Okay, so I have two. Po- I have some podcasts on uh, Christianity and philo- uh, philosophy and theology. Uh, so that's what I'm referring to here. Uh, Augustine very much sides with Clement and um, the Alexandrian school in seeing philosophy as a good thing. Tertullian said, "What hath Athens to do with Jerusalem?" He saw philosophy as a bad thing, um, along with a few other church fathers. Um, and he also saw philosophy as, um, or he saw Christianity as the final destination of the philosopher's quest. And this is how it was for him. He started out reading Hortensius, reading Cicero, um, reading some of the other great philosophers of his day, eventually Manichaeanism and skepticism, and finally all that led him to Christianity. Um, and all of that for him was a Godward quest. This was all him walking towards God because philosophy is the love of knowledge. It's the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom um, and learning. And, you know, God is truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Um, and uh, God's word is the word of truth. So for him to be a philosopher, you know, you're, you should be, if you're an honest philosopher, you're walking towards God. And if you find Christianity, you're actually, this is, this is philosophy done right. This is the final destination that you're supposed to end up at. So he didn't at all see philosophy as a bad thing. He saw it as leading towards God. And so he didn't feel bad about using Plato and Aristotle and, and especially Plotinus because he felt like all these people were seeking for the truth that he had found in Christianity. So he feels no compunctions in quoting favorably from philosophers or alluding to texts that would have been well known at the time. But care should be taken here to distinguish between the vocabulary and the substance of Augustine's Neoplatonism. So you can't just take a quote and assume you know, he might quote Plotinus, for example, as we'll see. You can't just assume that he's he's embracing all of Plotinus's thought. He's going to redefine those terms. Um, in general, Augustine's positivism towards philosophy was tempered by his submission to scriptures and to Catholic doctrine. For him, conversion included a commitment to belief in the core doctrines of the church. So in the podcast on uh, Augustine's use of philosophy and theology. Um, he uses philosophy to a point, but wherever the, wherever the Bible or Christian doctrine contradicts philosophy, he says the Bible always wins. So he might, he might you know, use philosophy, 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 but then you get to a, con- a conflict and he says, no, scriptures are right here. The church is right here. Um, 
And that that is because for him, by this time in the 4th century, Christian doctrine was a fairly well-established thing. Um, and, you know, certainly he had the scriptures in front of him as well. Um, and he knew what Christians believed, what Christianity believed. And, and so he was able to say, well, when these two come in conflict, having faith and, and being a Christian and dedicating my life to God means that I have committed to believe these principles. I, I believe in Christianity. And so when there's a conflict, Christianity is always right. Um, and this is uh, the basic, it sounds a little bit weird, I guess, um, but this is basically how I would do science as well, that um, I'm very positive, very open to science, very open to philosophy and studying you know, broadly in the sciences, but where there's a conflict, well, first of all, where there's a conflict, I think it, it should push us as Christians to go back and say, is this really what scriptures say? And that is not, sorry, Ken Ham, that is not being like the serpent and saying, hath God really said? That is just doing due diligence. You know, we have always believed something to be what the, the scriptures teach, but is that really what it says? And if it really is what scriptures say and there's no way around it, and this is absolutely rock solid, then we bite the bullet and say science is wrong. But if there is some wiggle room, then we're going to say, you know what, maybe we can reinterpret this. Maybe, maybe science is pushing us to see scriptures in a different light and even in a better light. Maybe... You know, we've just read scriptures like this, especially on scientific matters. Maybe we read scriptures like this because, you know, we didn't have anything better at the time. And now that we have better science, maybe it's actually uh, allowing us to see scriptures more clearly. Uh, and so that's basically what Augustine is doing. But he's mostly doing that with philosophy more than with science, although he famously said that um, Christians shouldn't, um, there's a great quote, on it uh, that you could probably Google, but because it's often used in the creation debate. Uh, but he says basically that Christianity shouldn't make too strong a claim about scientific facts because more progress might happen, and then Christianity would be found to be a fraud or or made to look silly. And so, rather, we should um, make only loose claims about science, um, what we what we think is true, what we believe, if we're not really experts in the field. All right. Um, thus, while Augustine at times utilizes with some liberality the terminology and the imagery of Neoplatonism, he often redefines these terms in radically new directions. And Augustine, I mean, for sure, he's a theist and he believes in the, in the Judeo-Christian God. And so, if you can just think about Neoplat uh, about um, Plotinus and his system, they're miles apart, right? And so Augustine is absolutely committed to believing in this Judeo-Christian God. So he's going to use some terms and some images and some concepts from Plotinus, but he's still going to be sticking with the basic concept of, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian God. Um, as a result, one could justifiably say that Augustine had as much of an impact on Neoplatonism as Neoplatonism had on him, especially in the West, and that the Neoplatonism to which Augustine opened the door of the Church through his work was a significantly different entity to that which had existed without. 
So at the beginning of the podcast last week, you know, I kind of said like, at first blush, this seems a little bit worrisome. You know, Plotinus had a trinity. Uh, Augustine tried to use Plotinus. It seems as though, you know, these huge influences are coming from outside, and that's why we have the trinity. That's why we have all these philosophical concepts in the church. But really, you know, Augustine was the main one letting this stuff in, although others had done it before him. But it really became anchored in the church through Augustine. But he had with him this strong commitment to say, no, Christianity is true. And where there's a conflict, the Bible wins, Christian doctrine wins. Uh, And so really what ended up coming through that door, um, yes, it had a strong influence from Plato and Plotinus, but it it wasn't the same thing. This wasn't this Buddhist sort of, uh, you know... um, ascension into the one and and all this sort of stuff it was very much christianized um and so that's important to say at the same time that we say that plotinus did have a big influence on augustine we also need to say but augustine also had a big influence on plotinus uh so to speak after his death on on the thought of of neoplatonism so first of all the nature of god augustine drew on plotinus at numerous points to describe the essence of god As has been mentioned, it was Plotinus who helped Augustine apprehend the immateriality of God. He also drew on Plotinus in in seeing God as eternal. When Augustine wrote, In the eternal there is neither anything past, as though it had passed away, nor any future, as though it was not yet. But whatever is, is. When he said that, he was, that was just a quote from Plotinus, that he didn't credit, uh, because he didn't often credit at the time. Following Plotinus, Augustine referred to God's omnipresence in that his center is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. Augustine also makes use of the concept of unity as a defining characteristic of God, sometimes speaking of multiplicity as descent away from God and as salvation as losing oneself into the unity of God. And this this one here... um, is one that, um, as you read the Confessions after knowing more about Plotinus, this is where he starts to really sound like Plotinus. Although what he's meaning by that is very different. Uh, because for Plotinus, it was kind of being the drop that's you know lost in the ocean, although somehow you retain your identity. Um, but for Augustine, it's becoming one, you know, as, as Jesus said in, in John 14, just as I am in the Father, you will be in me and I will be in you. It's, it's that oneness with God. Um, but he does talk about, you know, the unity with God and going away from from multiplicity back to simplicity and, and oneness with God uh, and, and sounding very much like a Platonic philosopher, likely to win Neoplatonists to the Christian faith to say, no, this is actually the, the true path towards enlightenment. Um, but again, what he meant by that was, was different than what Plotinus meant. Augustine also followed Plotinus in affirming the ineffability of God, meaning that we can't know anything about God, saying we can know what God is not, but not what he is. In uh, De Trinitas 8.2, um, and this is again the Via Negativa that became important for the Church um, throughout much of the early Middle Ages. In his important and and beyond, 
In his important work, De Trinitas, Augustine made free use of Plotinus' terminology of hypostasis to define the Trinity. As has been mentioned, this move was not original to Augustine, having already been critical, uh, crucial in the Trinitarian debate of the 4th century. What had become clear through the Arian controversy was that there was no ontological distinction between the Father and the Son. All three hypostases of the Trinity were one usia, or being, that is, they were homoousios. Rather, the great ontological distinction must be made between the Creator and the creation. This was a distinction that Plotinus could not make, and represents a significant reworking and Christian appropriation of his system. So for Plotinus, as we mentioned, there's a there's a huge difference between the one, which doesn't doesn't have being, and then mind, which is which has being, you know. And you know, the one and mind are both basically God kind of within Plotinus. And then the spirit is also kind of God. Um and so there's this big gap between the one and then mind and spirit. And that's like an on, the word ontological means what exists, what is. So there's a big difference. The the one is doesn't have being, can't be described. It's outside of everything. And then mind and spirit are are different. So if you're going to apply that to the Trinity, you would almost have to say, I mean, you would have to say that if God is the one, then He is God. And then if mind is Jesus and the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, then they are not God because there's this big ontological difference between the one and mind and spirit. Whereas for Christians, uh, and this really became important in this discussion, and through all the, the debates on the Trinity and you know the Arian controversy, what really became super important and super clear, Christians believed this before, but this, this whole controversy with Arian, Arianism made it so crystal clear that no, Jesus is God, as Christians have worshipped him since, you know, the first century, since 40 years after Jesus when they wrote Philippians 2, you know, as, or it was even less than that, or, um, or uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, clearly worshipping Jesus as God. Um, and so the the big distinction, the big ontological break is between the creator and the creation. Um, and so this is very different than Plotinus, um, but it's, you know, the change that Christianity made to Plotinus. Augustine followed Plotinus by locating the forms in the mind of God. And this is still um, where I am. Um, I've heard other explanations for that and... Um, that to me makes the most sense that uh, there there are concepts like absolute truth, absolute justice, the perfect triangle, you know, mathematical truths such as two plus two equals four. These truths are out there; they really exist. Where do they actually exist? In the mind of God, and because God knows them, they are true. And because God knows them, we see these truths imprinted throughout creation because God is the creator. And because, you know, these things exist in his mind as he's creating. Um, I have a feeling I might change that someday because I've heard, you know, um, through the the realist, anti-realist controversies that there's better ways of seeing it. But I'm still kind of Augustinian until somebody proves me wrong. Uh, this makes sense to me. Um, and um, Augustine got it from Plotinus.
Um, but here again is a significant difference. The truth as it is in Jesus is no other than the truth which is which the philosopher seeks, as Augustine says. And this is nothing, no, actually that was, yeah, Augustine in uh, De Magistria. This is nothing short of a Copern Copernician revolution for the Neoplatonic mind. It's the very foolishness of which Paul speaks. For Plotinus, personhood is at the bottom end of the scale. It results when soul comes in contact with matter, and is left behind as souls look first to the world soul, then to mind, and finally become reunited with the one. But for Augustine, God himself is personal. So just to explain this term, Copernusian revolution, it perplexed me as I started my theological debate theological education because nobody explained what it meant and it was used often copernicus said um i mean before before copernicus most people knew that the world was a sphere but they thought that the that the sun moon and stars rotated around the earth and through mathematics and you know detailed studying of the heavens copernicus said no actually the earth rotates around the sun as do the other planets and so if you can think of the you know, huge mind mashup that that would take to think, you know, people had thought that the earth was solid and immovable in the heavens and everything whipped around the earth. And now all of a sudden the earth is in motion around the sun, you know, it just kind of makes your head hurt to, to switch between those two. And for, um, and, you know, just a huge upset to everything uh, was the, is the concept of Copernican and revolution. And for Augustine, uh, like for Plotinus, personhood is the lowest you can go in individuality and individuation and separateness is the worst that you can go. What you want to do is go into the world soul where you're connected to every other living being and then go even higher than that to where you're in the world of, of thoughts and the forms and then go even higher than that to where, you know, all thoughts strip away and you just become one with the one but at that point personhood disappears because the one is not a being it's not a person it's not anything it's just you know whatever it is uh it's indescribableness um but for augustine when you get there when you ascend through you know all 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 this way of, of ascending towards god and augustine's got a different path obviously than plotinus um, but when you ascend, what you're going to meet is Jesus. Who you're going to meet is Jesus. And you're going to have this face-to-face -face contact as from one person to another person, um, you know, shaking Jesus' hand and, and talking with him and having that intimate communication uh, that we look forward to in heaven. And so this is completely upside down uh, from Plotinus. And this is probably the most shocking way that um, although Augustine uses some of the same terms and as he talking, it, it kind of sounds uh, Neoplatonic in how he talks about going to heaven and, and, you know, ascending to God and things. But what he's meaning is just, you know, upside down from what Plotinus is meaning um, because God is personal, God has being, um, and heaven is a place where we're going to have personal relationships, not only with God, but with one another. Further to difference of opinion on the nature of God, which is the so-called imminent trinity, 
Augustine also differed from Plotinus in the actions of God, the so-called efficient trinity. So people who study the trinity um, often divide between who God is, that's the imminent trinity, and what God does, the efficient trinity. So who God is is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What God does is, you know, the Father sends the Son, and the Son dies for us, and the Spirit indwells us, you know, the, the action. So the imminent trinity is who God is. The efficient trinity is what God does. Uh, and so Augustine disagrees not only on who God is, his essential nature, but also what God does. Plotinus is one created involuntarily and necessary, but the God of Augustine creates volitionally. Remember that the one didn't have uh, the ability to make free choices, wasn't even aware of them, but God is aware and conscious and consciously creates through his word. He did not need to create. Remember that the one can't help but create. It just emanates off of him. Whereas God didn't need to create. The Trinity didn't need to create. They were self-sufficient in and of themselves. Um, and, but they created volitionally uh, out of um, you know, uh, free will. Um, and in love and goodness, he chose to do so at a definite point in the finite past. This difference has huge ramifications for how Augustine was to see the related themes of matter, sin, humanity, the incarnation, and redemption. So matter and body. Along with Plotinus, Augustine sees creation as the outworking of a good and intelligent God. Together then, they reject the radical Gnostic, Gnostic rejection of the world. So Gnostics tend to see the world as bad. Plotinus saw it as pretty good, although matter is evil. Um, but it's indwelled with the spirit which is good uh, however Augustine saw the world in an even more positive sense than Plotinus for Augustine the very matter of the world is a good creation of an all good God as the part of matter which presents itself most imminently to us the body it's, is itself good for Augustine writes Williams the body is not this evil shadowy pseudo reality that only gets in the way of our true happiness the body is a divine creation. Now, that's interesting that I have that. Um, I don't actually remember writing that, but Augustine is kind of known for having a negative view of sexuality, um, a very negative, in fact, saying that married sex is a sin, albeit um, a venial or a forgivable sin. Um, but it's interesting that, at least theologically speaking, at least on paper, he had a positive view of the body. Uh, it's just too bad that his positive view of the body didn't extend to the natural things that bodies do, you know, having sex being one of them. Um, you know, and of course, as Christians, sex within marriage shouldn't be a problem. In fact, it's a good thing. Uh, second point here is evil. In the radical break from Plotinus, metaphysical distance for Augustine does not equate to moral depravity. Um, okay, so what I mean is for Plotinus, the further that you get away from the one, the more evil you are or the more evil that something is. So, um, you know, matter is the lowest you can go and it's morally evil. Like 
this is kind of weird, but a rock that's unformed, there's no, there's no, it's not like a crystal that has form in it. It's just a rock. That's evil. It's a bad rock, evil rock, <laughs> because it, it has no form in it. It has no spirit in it. Um, and, and so the further you get away from organization and, and from the one, the more evil you are, or the, the more there is evil. But for Augustine, um, it is a turning of the creature away from the creator to focus on the creature itself, to, for the creation to focus on itself, that is the, the fall of man, quote-unquote. This is not to say that the world is all good. The creation pre presents certain possibilities of temptation and evil to every human. First is the danger that humanity will turn from worship of the Creator to worship of His creation. Further, the busyness and worldliness, quote-unquote, of embodied existence can have the effect of distracting one from the divine. In a distinctly Neoplatonic Neo citation, Augustine writes that the multiformity of temporal things did by the senses distract fallen man from the unity of God. This turning of the creation creature away from the creator to fold in upon itself is the selfishness in selfishness is the Augustine Augustinian definition of evil. And here Augustine returns to Neoplatonic language of a fall and our need to rise back to God. However, this Neoplatonic language must be read within the larger Christian framework of Augustine. For him, evil is ethical and not ontological. So again that word ontological meaning um, the study of what is um, for him I mean for Plotinus something is evil like the rock is is more evil than for example a bird because the bird demonstrates more of the spirit and so it has more um, of God within it than the rock um, but for Augustine neither of them are really evil um, evil is a moral question uh, it's a question of how much we're turning away from God and towards ourselves and although it's true that in the world there's many things that pull us in many directions and he kind of plays up this language of plurality and uh, busyness and um, you know being divided as being a, a walk away from God because often that is how we experience it you know you're on your Twitter your Facebook your you're at work, you're on the freeway, you're you're pulled in a million directions, and that definitely distracts you from, you know, just pulling in and focusing on what's really important, you know, the few close friends that really matter and your relationship with God and, and your own heart. Um, and so for sure, plurality can distract us um, from the one, from, from you know, from God. Um, but we shouldn't we shouldn't get too excited by that language. We shouldn't think too much that he is going back to Neoplatonism. We should look at that language and, and see that what he really means is ultimately what we need to do is repent. Uh, it's a heart matter. It's not, um, it's not a matter of uh, um, getting closer to the one through uh, the ways that Plotinus had talked about. Next subject, the soul. Whereas Augustine's view of the body represented a significant elevation of humanity, his teaching as regards the soul represented a sort of demotion. 
So he lifted up the body, uh, you know, compared to other philosophers at the time. No, the body is good. The body is good. What about the soul? Well, actually, the soul is kind of bad. <laughs> For most Greek thinkers at the time, the soul is very, very good. That's how you ascend. That's, you know, the spirit is good. Thoughts are good. But for Augustine, no, the soul has its problems. In Plotinus, as in most Greek religion and philosophy, the human soul is is in some way divine. But in Christianity, there is an ontological distinction between God and man. So again, for Plotinus, the, the soul that we have is connected to the world soul. And so we are God. We are part of God. But for Augustine, no, we're, we're the creature, not the creation. There's a, there's a distinction here. Uh, and it's highly significant uh, when you read Confessions. Um, the whole book is a prayer that, that uh, Augustine is having between himself and God. And he sees himself as distinct from God. Plotinus could never have, have done that. Plotinus couldn't pray to God because he was God uh, in his own thinking. Whereas Augustine, in his heart of hearts, is continually speaking to God um, because he's distinct from God. He is the creature. God is the creator. Um, and that's an ontological distinction. There's a difference in kind between them. Further, the Augustine, Augustine came to reject with some difficulty the idea of a preexistence of the soul, teaching and said that souls are generated through copulation. This belief became very important for his doctrine of original sin. So Augustine really wanted to hold on to this idea that souls existed before birth. But really his commitment to, to, to the Bible and to Christian doctrine made him say, no, you know, God, God is the one that, that actually knows these things. And he's revealed his truth in scriptures. And scriptures very clearly say, uh, or it really seems clear from scriptures that souls do not exist before uh, birth. Jesus did. That's an exception. Human souls started at birth. And his belief was that uh, souls were generated actually through copulation. And that became important for original sin. A hunger for God. Although humans are not a part of God. And I don't think I talk about original sin later in the paper. So let me just mention that Augustine is often seen as the father of um, the doctrine of original sin, um, although the concept certainly was around before him, he was the one that really hammered it out. In Confessions, um, early in the book, he talks about himself as a child, he talks about children in general, and about how um, you might have just a tiny, cute little baby, um, but this baby is able to um, be jealous to the point of wishing to, to basically kill their sibling um, because their sibling gets to nurse and they don't. Um, and he asks, how could, how can you excuse this kind of behavior? Being jealous to the point of, of pushing this baby away from, from nursing when that milk is the only thing keeping that baby alive. That's basically a murderous spirit. As well, when babies don't get their way, as we well know, they scream, they cry, they flail around, they punish their parents um, in ways, uh, and as they grow a little bit older, it becomes more clear that they are actually trying to manipulate and punish their parents explicitly sometimes. Um, and he says, if we saw this kind of behavior in adults, we would call this sinful behavior. 
And why would we not call it sinful behavior in children? And you could say, well, they'll grow out of it. But if they're gonna, if if we say they're gonna grow out of it, and this is a good thing, then it must be a bad thing that they have. And so he says, basically, look, children are sinful from the very beginning. And then he uses uh, verses like um, Psalm fifty-one: "Behold, I was born in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me." Um, and Romans five uh, that talk about how um, through one man sin entered the world, and through him all died to explain the fact that um, everybody is born in the state in the state of sinfulness that's not to say that um, that because we're born into sinfulness we all immediately upon conception deserve to die um, at least that's not how I interpret him sometimes um, some interpreters of Augustine would say that that we are born with both the propensity to sin and the guilt of sin because Adam as our as our representative as our federal head sinned therefore the consequences of, of that fall to us I would see it as we have the propensity to sin and from a very young age we start to sin on our own and as soon as we sin then we have the guilt of sin we have the guilt of our own sins and this helps with the difficulty because in the Old Testament it's very clear, it says numerous times that you will not put the son to death for the sins of the father, nor the father to death for the sins of the son. Um, how do you reconcile that with the fact that scriptures also say, uh, I will punish um, those who, you know, the wicked people to the third and fourth generation. There is a way in which sin passes down, but we're not put to death for the sins of our fathers, we're put to death for our own sins. So I would say that um, original sin means that from birth we have a, a tendency towards sin that comes from our parents and that comes ultimately from Adam's choice um, and that we are going to make that decision um, at some point in our life and and that's just, I mean, I don't know anybody who has ever said, <laughs> I mean, it, it might exist somewhere, but just what everybody says, look, I'm a sinner. Everybody knows that, that they haven't lived up to what they know is right. Um, and this is because of our sin nature that goes back to Adam. And it's passed on, according to Augustine, it's passed on through sex, through copulation. And so it was important for him. Of course, Christians believed that Jesus was born of a virgin before this. But the way that, Je that Augustine explained the fact that uh, Jesus did not have a sin nature is that he was not conceived through sexual copulation uh, and so in that way he avoided inheriting um, the sin nature and the uh, technical language that Augustine developed for this is um, if I can get it right passe non peccare um, passe non If you, if you look up passing on Picari, then you'll find all the rest of the terms. I can't remember the Latin off the top of my head. But Adam was able to sin, able not to sin. Passi Picari, passi non Picari, I think. Um, so he could go either way. You know, he was on a knife's edge. He could go this way, he could go that way. Uh, he was able to choose not to sin, and he was actually free to make that choice. Or he was able to make the choice to sin. And who knows what would have happened if he had chosen not to sin. Um, but now that we are born with a sin nature, 
we are able to we are able to choose to sin. We have this free will choice. We can make that decision, um, but we are not able not to sin. Non passe non picari. Um, we are not able to make. We are not able to consistently for our whole life always make the choice never to sin. We can make a choice to not do specific sins, but over the course of our lives, we're not able to consistently choose not to sin. Um, in Christ, as we get saved and uh, the Holy Spirit starts to work in us, we are able to sin, we are able not to sin. And this is what Christ does in us, is really enable us not to sin. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know, a victorious Christian will never, ever, ever sin. It means that we have the the choice to live in sinlessness and to really have um, real victory over sin. And I've seen this. I've seen God defeat sin in my life, even really deep ingrained sins, and I'm thankful for that. And in heaven, we're going to be free to not... We're going to be free to worship God, but we will not be free to sin. There, there will not be the ability for us to sin. It's just not going to be in our nature. All right, so that was a little bit of a, uh, um, and and that was a little bit of a side note. And this um, teaching of original sin is very much coming under attack today. Uh, and so I want to study it more because I really feel like this is the lifeblood of Christianity, um, especially in the West. I, I really feel like this, this is what is behind. All the revivals, all the missions in the West that has just absolutely captured the world uh, has done so much good. It has really been Augustine's idea of original sin, um, which brings about this very clear gospel message and this very clear urgency to to speak the message to others. Um, and our generation is very much turning away from that, and I think that's, that's a real shame. Um, okay. Next topic is a hunger for God, and we're close to being done here. Although humans are not a part of God, we are made in his image. This is another big difference between Plotinus and Augustine. Sin has made a separation between God and man. It is this reality that sets up the hunger to be reunited to God, which Plotinus spoke of. In what has been described as probably the most in most often repeated prayer in Christendom after the Lord's Prayer, Augustine begins his confession with the prayer, Thou didst make us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. Like Augustine, like Plotinus, Augustine too lays out a path towards unity with God, but both the path and the destination show marked differences. So this prayer, I don't know if you've heard it, um, but for me it's it's so decisive it's so clear it's so central um to how i see things is that we were made for god and our hearts are restless until we rest in him um and that to me just explains so much of of the importance and the necessity of christianity and um the compassion of of speaking the message because people people need him but um and this is similar to what plotinus would have said in fact, some have said that this this quote itself is 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 basically um, using Plotinus. It's kind of a paraphrase of Plotinus. But again, what he meant by that, what Augustine meant by that, was very different. A Godward quest. Augustine's Confessions is not mere biography, 
but is at least in part a sort of tract or manual, using his own life as a roadmap towards salvation. In this path, Augustine describes his quest towards God in terms very similar to the Plotinian quest. First, in a love of nature, one can see the handiwork of the divine mind, and from there move to contemplation of the Maker. This contemplation ought to be coupled with a separation from worldliness and ever higher speculations, leading finally to mystical experiences with God. All of this is but, but, all of this is mere preparation for the true adventure, which is unity with God himself. And as we're going to find out, um, the unity that Augustine is speaking of is very different than the unity that Plotinus was speaking of. In a passage rich in literary significance, Augustine contrasts two philosophical-slash-mystical experiences that he had. The first occurred in Milan before his conversion and seemed similar to the sorts of mystical unions experienced by Plotinus. Augustine makes much of this short and ultimately unsatisfying nature of this experience, contrasting it with an experience he shared with his mother after his conversion in Ostia. Okay, so um, it was a really, really big deal that Plotinus had, I think, three or four mystical experiences towards the end of his life that at least three or four times he actually, while he was in the body, you know, according to him, had this mystical experience where he became one with the one, you know, and, and through meditation and, and sensory deprivation and whatever else, he, he became one with the one. And in Confessions, Augustine has the audacity to say, well, I had that too. <laughs> wasn't the, and then not only does he say that, but he actually says, and it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> um, the way he says it isn't really in your face like that, but it is a little bit pretentious for him to say that. Um, and then he contrasts that with, you know, after I was a Christian, um, I had another mystical experience, and he kind of just goes into it a little bit. Um, and it's not clear exactly what he had because he shared this experience with his mother, uh, who was a Christian and was very excited that he finally became a Christian. And they had some sort of an experience together, and whether that was just through prayer. You know, a lot of us have experienced really powerful things through prayer or through worship meeting or through a Bible study that just, like, the Holy Spirit was there. And you just, like, wow, you know, like, it's amazing. Um, and so he had some sort of an experience like this, and then you contrast the two, and it's very significant how he contrasts them. Um, so speaking of the first experience, he says, I lacked the power to fix my gaze there. My weakness was rebuffed, and I returned to my accustomed ways, taking nothing back with me but a loving memory and the desire for a food that I had smelled but could not yet eat. And I was seeking some way of gathering a strength that would fit me to enjoy you. But I was not to find it until I embraced the mediator of God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who is God above, blessed forever, calling out and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and mingling his flesh, mingling with flesh, the food that I was too weak to eat. Man, I love that passage. Um, so in his powerful, eloquent way, Augustine is saying, I had this experience. It was so brief. It was so short. All it did was leave me hungry for more of 
of this food that I couldn't really eat. God is so different. He is so far from us. And this is very much echoing Plato, who talked about leaving the cave, coming back, and not being able to explain what he experienced over there. Uh, and, and Augustine says, I came back bringing nothing from that experience. There's nothing from that experience that I could give to others or the, that I could even hold on to. And it wasn't until until I saw the mediator between God and man, who is Jesus. Sorry, I'm just cracking up. This is just so true. And, and Jesus mingled his flesh with our flesh so that we could become one with God. And it just like, and that was, that's the key. That's the key. Ever the evangelist, Augustine was writing directly to the Platinian disciple in his passage, making much of this short and transient nature of the experiences that Plotinus described. Augustine explained that the weakness of our humanity needed to be complemented with the strength of the incarnation in, in order for true salvation to take place. The Incarnation Augustine famously championed the doctrine of original sin in his confessions and defended the doctrine in his later anti-Pelagian writings. Augustine's view that all humans are non passe non picari, that is, not able not to sin, dashed any hopes of a self-affected salvation through contemplation and asceticism such as Plotinus offered. It also gave definite form and a reason for the weakness that both Augustine and Plotinus seem to have experienced in the presence of God. Why are humans unable to dwell in the presence of God? The, pro the problem for Augustine is original sin, and the solution is Jesus. Augustine's Christian view of the body made possible what would have been um, absurdity or foolishness to Plotinus. In an illuminating passage, Augustine writes that much of the Logos theology of John 1 he found in Plotinus, but what he didn't find there was the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation was the greatest affirmation possible of the validity of the material world. Not only was matter created by God, but it was capable of being co-joined to God in Christ. This, Plotinus could never imagine this, uh, that the one could be united to matter. Um, that's just, um, that would be absurd. That would be crass and, and horrible for him. But in Christianity, God be becomes united with matter. Jesus becomes incarnate. And in him dwells all the fullness of, the, of Godhead bodily. Because the divine was able to join himself to matter, he could by this union draw humanity up to himself, providing a way of salvation. Just want to have a quick note here for the more nerdy folks. Um, in Confessions, Augustine's Confessions, Book Seven, Thirteen and One Twenty One, he talks about um, he uses John one, and he contrasts Plato's teaching through Plotinus basically uh, with Christian teaching through John one. He says there's a lot of similarities here. Um, the word um, was in the beginning with God. All right, that, that makes sense for Plotinus. Um, all things were created through the word, through the logos, through rationality. That, that makes sense for Plotinus. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That makes sense. Um, the word was the light of men. That makes sense. 
uh, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. Yeah, for sure. All this stuff Plotinus is tracking with John 1 until it gets to, and the word was made flesh and dwelled among us. And here it's like, you know, stop the record. Like, no, <laughs> Plotinus isn't following John here. Plato's not following John here. Um, this is where Christianity makes a huge break from Greek thought. Um, and this is precisely at the point where we need God to intervene because without some sort of a mediator, um, there's no way we can bridge this, this gap between creation and creator. Lasting Plotinian effects on Augustinianism. As has been mentioned, Plotinus had an effect on Augustine in regards to language and, sim and symbology. Since much of Augustine's writing was either explicitly or implicitly apologetic in nature, much of these superficial similarities can be dismissed as Augustine seeking to present the unchanging gospel in a culturally acceptable form. So as I've mentioned before, Augustine is writing to people who are very influenced by Plotinus, and so he often will use the language of the day and even the, the images and the symbolism to try and, and woo people who were on as he was um, and to try and, and convince them that Christianity is an intellectually credible religion and that they ought to convert. So some of some of the ways that he's using Plotinus is he's just simply, you know, trying to make it more interesting and appealing. Um, or even just to explain it to people who are thinking in a certain way. However, there are at least three ways in which Plotinus was to inject a foreign element into the church through his effect on Augustine. So this is this is the smoking gun. I mean, in a lot of ways I've said, well, really, Plotinus wasn't so bad. Uh, Augustine changed Plotinus, um, and Plotinus didn't have an effect on the church. But there are at least three ways that I've identified where he did have an effect, and it wasn't a good effect. Uh, and there are um, ways in which Plotinus changed Augustine, and through Augustine, left an impression on the church, which then became a negative thing. In regards to the soul, Augustine made a conscious break from Plotinus when he came to understand the soul as created during copulation, also known as traducianism, and not eternal or preexistent. However, Augustine was to retain the notion that human beings are a soul which merely possesses a body. Um, as you may have heard C.S. Lewis say, C.S. Lewis is very, very uh, Augustinian, um, as am I. Um, and so uh, this idea that you are essentially a soul and you merely inhabit a body um, is the issue we're talking about here. Further, Augustine continued to consider the soul as complete in itself and able to apprehend knowledge through access to the f forms in the mind of God without recourse to sensory information. This rational tendency encouraged Augustine towards an inwardness, produce a tendency, and produce a tendency like Plotinus to turn away from the material world to the inner world with an effect which tends to ethereal to Theorialize the Christian life. So I see two problems with this. First of all, I think a, a more Jewish understanding of Christianity that I think theology is starting to re-apprehend, re-get re, our hands back on, 
is this idea that the body is good and that we are we are we do have a soul but we do have a body too and as as paul says we do not desire to be unclothed that is to be spirits without a body but to be clothed um and when we've put off this body of mortality we are to put on a body of immortality um once this body dies we're supposed to have another body uh, our souls aren't supposed to not be with not be with a body because that would be like being naked um and so uh, it seems as though Augustine has kind of drunk too deeply of the of the the Platonic waters of his day, in seeing the soul itself as you know a, a substance in and of itself that can survive without the body, um, and in that way devaluing the human body. Uh, whereas uh, I think a better way of reading scriptures and understanding it is that the body is is an essential part of who we are and uh, when we you know our bodies will die our souls will live on but we're going to have a new body that is going to be made in the same image as the body that we have Um, and uh, the body is very important and also this turned away from the outward world towards an inward world Um, and so this tended to devalue science to some extent, it, te- it tended to devalue an examination of the external world to focus inwards. Although, you know, it's hard to say really how much Augustine was to blame for this. Um, you can't make sweeping statements like, well, after Augustine, it was all the Dark Ages, you know, or it was his fault. There were a lot of factors that came into play. Um, the major ones being the fall of Rome and, um, you know, the, the social anarchy that followed. They were responsible for the Dark Ages and the turn away from science. All right, Augustine further taught that sin is passed from parents to children through copulation, and specifically through the male seed. Um, So it's through semen that you get sin. This apparently explains why Mary did not pass on original sin to Jesus, because there was no semen involved. This belief, in addition to this belief, in addition to an ascetic. of life, which was a handover of his Manichaean and Neoplatonic heritage, predisposed Augustine to have a negative view of sex and the body, a belief which was to have large consequences, especially for the Western Western Church in years to come. So this is well known uh, that, I think I already mentioned this, I did mention this, that Augustine had a negative view of sex, which he then passed on especially to uh, the Catholic Church, although Protestants have also have a kind of complex view of sex um i i don't think that anybody is really comfortable with it (laughs) um and i i wish we would i try my best to just say it just say the word sex uh and i have a bible in my hand and we have a bible study and i just say and then sex you know and i'm not ashamed of it and it's not weird because this is what god has designed us to do um and i'm trying to push back against uh, the influence of of Augustine, uh, which has made it a really weird thing, and I mean, same with my kids. You know, um, I've got two boys that are that are getting up to the age where they need to know what it is, and you know, it's not that that you unload everything on them and tell them all about you know all the perversion in the world, but I want them to understand from a young age how animals reproduce and and how humans reproduce, and and you know that 
this is a beautiful thing. It's not anything weird uh, and to be shunned. And unfortunately, often that is how it is, how it, how it comes across. And of course, the celibacy, um, the idea that priests can't be married and things like that, you can trace these things back to people like Augustine. A final influence of Plotinus on Augustine was in regards to the ineffability of God. While maintaining that we could know much about God due to his self-revelation, Augustine followed Plotinus in affirming the final unknowability of God. This aspect of Augustine Neoplatonism was to join other tributaries of Christian thought to create the broad river of apophatic theology, later known as the Via Negativa. So, yeah, I think I said this earlier, previous podcast, I said I was going out on a limb. When I was actually researching this, I saw that uh, it was uh, in large part due to Plotinus, although there were other influences as well. I think the Desert Fathers... um, and others were involved in this, but eventually this became, you know, the via negativa, the negative way of talking about God. Conclusion. Alfred North Whitehead is famously known as characterizing all of Western philosophy as a series of footnotes on Plato. If this be true, it cannot be insignificant that the vision of Platonism that Augustine received was viewed, as it were, through the spectacles afforded by Plotinus. As has been shown, the Platonism of which Augustine was familiar was one which brought elements of Aristotle in harmony with Platonism and proposed some original elements such as the religious element of salvation through asceticism and contemplation. Since Augustine became in some ways a conduit of Platonism into the Western Church and philosophy, it is also significant to note the influence of Plotinus upon Augustine and vice versa. As has been shown, Augustine was no passive recipient of Plotinus, but significantly reworked his system. That being said, Plotinus left several very significant marks on Augustine. These marks include the vocabulary of hypostasis and the uniquely Platonic imagery of rising and falling as analogies for describing one's relation to God. More significantly, Plotinus was to have a lasting impact on Augustine's view of the soul, of the body, and human sexuality, and on the ineffability of God. Without a doubt, however, the most important effect of Plotinus on Augustine was that of facilitating his conversion from skepticism to Christianity. For this reason, whatever adverse effects which Plotinus may have had, it should be concluded that the net result of Plotinus on Augustine was an overwhelmingly positive one leading to the conclusion that the Western that Western Christianity owes a debt of gratitude to the pagan non Christian Plotinus, who was used of God to aid in the conversion of one of the most important doctors of the church. I don't know what I could add to that, so I'm just going to conclude the podcast there. Um, if you want to read this uh, this paper that I wrote, you can go to my blog, No Longer Be Children dot com uh, the paper is just called Plotinus and Augustine or the influence of Plotinus on Augustine and I hope you have an excellent day God bless <laughs>